0: Hello and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona during our normal service. Preaching with you today. Um, there's a great, very quotable movie from 1987. It's called The Princess Bride. It's a bit of a cult classic. Everyone loves this film. I mentioned it, and I see a bunch of smiles. So I'm glad that many of us are familiar with that. Um, and even if you haven't seen it, um, it's very possible that you've heard someone quote from it, because it's a very quotable movie. A lot of memes are being made about it even, even now. Um, and one of the characters is known for saying the word inconceivable uh, throughout the film. Um, and the irony is, his retort um, is always being uh, being after he's being told something that's true. So he says, "Inconceivable, that could never happen," and yet this thing is very much happening right in front of his face. And so, for instance, earlier in the film, uh, there, are the, him and his his band of uh, his, his his cohort, uh, they're on this uh, boat and they're traveling along, and they think they're not being followed, but someone is like, "You know, I'm pretty sure we're being followed," and he's like, "Inconceivable," but yet you know, they are being followed. Um, Later in the film, they're climbing up this rope up up this cliff, and they look down, and someone says, oh, the Dread Pirate Roberts is climbing this rope up after us. And he says, inconceivable, and yet the Dread Pirate Roberts is indeed climbing up after them. They can see him uh, right there. And so again, he says this line throughout the film, and at one point, another character in Diego Montoya turns to him, and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So we've all been in situations where um, maybe we have a light bulb that goes off in our heads and we realize like, oh, I've been using this word or this phrase and maybe I've been misunderstanding it. Maybe I've been using it incorrectly. Um, it's, you know, It's an awkward place to be, but like all of us here at some point in our lives have had that experience at least once. And so I bring this all up because... We are continuing our series today on what does it mean to be a peace church? What what does that value mean for us? And today we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And that's an idea that sometimes we have misunderstandings about or maybe a misinterpretation of what that means. We'll be exploring the kingdom of God and being a peace church today. Um, So as always, we begin in prayer, so I do invite you to pray with me. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful uh, just for the person of Jesus and the message that he brought, and we're thankful to be studying what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Um, And so we're thankful for the truth of that throughout the ages and the truth of that for us even here now today. Uh, I pray this morning as I preach uh, I would be able to uh, be truthful in what I say, and if anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. Uh, But we pray that you'd be brought glory and honor and learn to better be your disciples and learn to better be a people of peace as a result. Amen. All right, so our passage today is from John 18. I'll put up We'll talk about Pilate here for a second. Um, and it's this uh, back and forth uh, conversation that Jesus uh, have during the trial and arrest of Jesus. So they have this conversation. Um, so a bit of a you know, back story, make sure we understand what's going on. Um, Pilate is the governor of Judea at this time. And really his job is to keep order and to make sure that Rome is happy with him. He has some semblance of power, but it's also very limited. Um, But if he would get get wind of an uprising or or a revolt against Rome, he's certainly going to take that seriously because he could lose his job or maybe even his head in the process. Um, And In the first century, uh, there was a lot of tension there in Judea, as the Jewish people were basically under the uh, thumb of Rome. Uh, Now, they were granted a lot of freedom and to practice what they wanted to do, uh, but at the same time, they had to play by Rome's rules. And so they can kind of do what they want, but also like Rome was right there, and they couldn't get too carried away with things. Uh, plus, there was just tons of taxes that they had to pay. They were supporting things with their money that they didn't like, all kinds of violence, etc. So it was kind of like an awkward, awkward place to be. Um, and in the first century, there actually were a lot of um, uprisings that were going on. Uh, in the first century, various individuals had kind of sprung up and said, like, hey, I am your Messiah. Um, I am here to overthrow Rome. Like, this happened several times, where then they'd get some people together, and there would be a bunch of violence. And so, again, there's this uh, heavy sense of awkward tension, that you can do what you want, you can practice what you want, you can um, believe what you want, but if you push Rome too far, we will come in, we will stop you, and we will take you out. And so when Pilate hears that yet there's another guy who's claiming to be the king of the Jewish people, he needs to step in and figure out what's going on. So here's some of their back-and-forth conversation up on the screen. So Pilate comes out and he says, Hey, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus responds to verse 36, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate hears this and he says, Okay, so you are a king. And Jesus' response, You say that I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth all who love the truth recognize that what i say is truth and then Pilate, he has this amazingly ironic question at the end saying what is truth and i just i love the irony of this i hope we can appreciate that because Pilate is literally staring at truth in the face looking at him right in the eye like the truest truth that he will ever see And he's like what is truth it's like It's standing right in front of you. So I hope we can just appreciate just how, like, bitterly ironic that question is. Uh, But getting back to verse 36, uh, this basically sums up how we understand what it means to follow Jesus and the type of kingdom that he sought to establish. Uh, Verse 36 is where it's at. That Christ is indeed king over all of us, over all of humanity, uh, but the kingdom he brought forth, it's not an earthly kingdom. It's not one of this world. Uh, Because earthly kingdoms, what they care about is power and control, and they will fight tooth and nail to keep that, to hold on to that. Very much that's what Rome was doing, and really every kingdom to follow. And that's the the exact opposite of what the kingdom of, of Jesus is like. That's the exact opposite of what the kingdom of God is like. And the followers of Jesus, they aren't about fighting. And so, yes, Jesus is king, but he's radically transforming our definition and understanding of what that means. And, you know, as people, as, as humans, all of us here live on earth under various kingdoms. Like, that's pretty much true of all people at all, at all times. Um, we as humans, we set up these kingdoms here on earth. Every culture, every time period basically has these kingdoms that we establish. So we establish our rules and our borders of who is in and who is out, Uh, We set up leaders and others that we look up to and we follow. And without these kingdoms we do this because without them it might be a little bit chaotic, we might have anarchy reigning, and we kind of want to just have some sense of order about things. Um, When we read about the ancient Israelites, they had set up a kingdom too. And now from the get-go, God was supposed to be their king, they were kind of supposed to look to him. Uh, But if you read the story about Israel, after a while they looked around at the nations around them and they were like, no, we want this too. We wanna have earthly kings uh, to, to uh, rule over us. Um, we today still very much do this as well. At any given moment, all of us here are part of various kingdoms. Uh, right now, we're all part of the American kingdom. That's one kingdom that we all live under because we live here. You um, kind of can boil it down a little bit more. Um, all of us here are probably under the Arizona kingdom. Like We all live here and there's, uh, we live under that kingdom and, and play by those rules. Um, and then even further down, we're all part of like our local kingdom. I'm, I'm part of the Phoenix kingdom. Some of you are part of the Scottsdale kingdom or the Tempe kingdom or the Chandler uh, kingdom. Uh, we have rules, we have leaders, and if we don't follow these things, if we don't kind of do what they say, we can get into some trouble along the way. Um, all of us here have jobs, and your job is kind of like a kingdom as well. Uh, there are rules and there are leaders in place, and, and if you don't follow them, you get into trouble. You might lose your job. Um, and In the earthly ministry of Jesus, he came to establish the true kingdom of God. He came to help uh, restore peace and to provide this great reset to humanity. And unlike the earthly kingdoms we serve, the rules are very different. That, yes, we have rules we follow, but they are very, much unlike, they are very unlike the rules that we have in our kingdoms today. Um, so Christ is indeed king, um, and the rules that we have are learn to be at peace with one another. It's like one of the central things is to learn to love each other, to get along. Um, this kingdom does not have a border. Like there's no border to the kingdom of God. All humans are invited to participate in this kingdom. It doesn't matter what geographical kingdom you fall under. Um, at the end of the day, your loyalty is to that of Jesus. Um, and so when we talk about these things, these kingdoms, there's going to be this tension that exists with that uh, because we're living in different kingdoms at any given moment. Um, and so we live by the rules of, these, uh, of the kingdoms of this world. Like, you know, whatever we are, wherever we live geographically, our, our nations, things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we pledge our allegiance to Christ first and foremost uh, that Christ will always remain the true king of all, no matter where we are like living and what other kingdoms we're part of. And unlike earthly kingdoms, the kingdom of God is not concerned with power, the kingdom of God is not concerned about control, it's about sharing the peace of Christ to all. That's like what the rules of the kingdom are about, living at peace with one another, no matter where you are, no matter where they find themselves in the world. Um, one of the parables that Jesus gives in Matthew 13, we kind of had a responsive reading today, uh, the kingdom of God is presented as a mustard seed. It's this tiny little thing, like a mustard seed you can like, barely even see, but when you plant it and it grows, it becomes this massive tree, um, and that seed becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. Uh, the kingdom of god is supposed to be this thing that provides comfort and shade and support it's supposed to provide life to others that's what it means to live by the kingdom of god like is to be a source of life to others as as a church and as individuals we provide this life we provide this peace and so when we say that we are a church who cares about peace who values peace who cares about peacemaking and all of that uh, when we say that we are a historic peace church Uh, Whenever we say that we value and prioritize uh, being a community of peace, it's it's imperative, it's like of the utmost importance for for us to understand we do this because of how we view Jesus, because of how we understand Jesus and the rules of the kingdom. It's all based in the work of Christ and who he is. That's what the key for us is, that we believe that Christ is king and that we're trying to live under the guidelines of the kingdom that he established here with us. Our pursuit of living at peace with all is based upon our pursuit of picking up our cross and following after Christ. And so when we say we believe in peace, it's not because of like some political party that we might find affinity with. It's not because of some celebrity or some famous person that talks about peace, and we're like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, it's not because that, you know, conflict stresses us out, and we all just want to get along. You know, we can throw out all these reasons that we think we should uh, pursue peace, many of which are fine and completely okay, and they're, they're valid, uh, but again, like, the kingdom of God is all about following after what Jesus says. It's all based upon him and his work uh, and his ministry. And so the framework that we're putting forth is a different way of thinking, a different way of living. Uh, sometimes it will fit in with the kingdoms that we live under, many times, though, it might not. Uh, Christ, though, calls us to be a people of peace and nonviolence, not so much because it works all of the time, but because it reflects a different society. It reflects the kingdom of God. Christ calls us to be people of peace, not because it always works, because, but because it reflects the kingdom. You know, if, you, if you look up like, uh, critiques of peacemaking, pacifism, things like that, uh, one of the things that people bring up, one of the kind of talking points is, like, it's not practical. Like, that doesn't work. You might get, like, stomped on. And I think when you, when you think about, like, the ways of Jesus and the kingdom of God, like, maybe that's okay. Uh, maybe uh, it's not always supposed to be practical. Uh, maybe some, we won't always get what we think that we should get. Um, you know, the life of faith, there will be times where we're doing the right thing, and we don't actually get what we think we deserve. Like, we did the right thing, and we still got, like, slapped in the face. Uh, there might be times where we uh, try to take the high road, and we still get hurt in the process, we still get burned in the process. There may be times where we try to be a person of peace, offer forgiveness, and that person wants nothing to do with us. So I think it's very important to remember that Christ never calls us to be successful in the things we do, but instead to be faithful with what we do. Uh, None of us are called to success, but we're always called to be faithful, to be faithful to Christ, uh, to be faithful in our responses of what we encounter. Uh, to live by Christ-like principles and actions in the things that we do. Um, you know, sometimes that means that we'll have success in our earthly kingdoms of this world, and sometimes it means we might be a complete failure. Um, I was thinking about this for a little bit this week as I was like thinking about the life of Jesus and peacemaking, and, you know, you know, are we called to success? What does that look like? And if you read the story of Christ, if you read about his life in the four Gospels, by our modern American standards— he was a complete failure. The ministry, the life of Jesus, what he did while he was here on this earth, he was a failure. Um, if you study his life, like he, had three, he was around for 30 plus years. He had three years in the spotlight. He had about a dozen men follow him, kind of, kind of stuck with him. Um, he had no money. He had no place to rest his head. He had others fund his operation for him. He wasn't like uh, making money. In fact, in Luke, we read that wealthy women were supporting him. Like that's like wild for first-century thinking. Um, In in his inner circle, towards the end of his life, one of his closest friends betrayed him over a bag of money. Um, And in his darkest, darkest, darkest moment, everyone that he cared about, like they all left him. They all abandoned him, and they ended up dying on a cross by the state of Rome. He was executed by like the state. And so, when you look at the facts of the life of Jesus, he's not someone that we would look up to by what we would define success in the modern day. And so I think when we talk about being a peace church, uh, pursuing a life of peace might not exactly look like success as we think it in the modern day. Again, we all have these various kingdoms that we serve under as we're ultimately uh, trying to serve Christ. And one of the many problems, like the, the, again, the tensions that come with this is that we try to like, smush these different kingdoms together with the kingdom of God. And our loyalties become merged in the process. And whenever we do this, we end up getting burned in the process. So at any given moment, all these kingdoms that you're living under, you're trying to like smirch them together with the, with the, uh, with the kingdom of God, and that becomes really sticky. Um, so for instance, when, if you take a step back, we here in the West, uh, we can look at like, and examine how Christianity is often practiced in third world contexts. And, and when you look up that and you study that, um, sometimes this idea of syncretism comes up. This syncretism, this idea of mixing religious ideas together. Uh, that is to say, you look at someone who's practicing their faith in, like, Africa or something like that, um, and there's some sort of, like, pagan religious ideas that get, that, that get mixed into following Jesus. And so, like, they're claiming to worship Jesus, but they also value the concept of ancestor worship. Um, or they're claiming to follow Jesus uh, while also relying on spells or magic or, or visiting a shaman or something like that. And so, often, if we're t- discussing this in the West, we will criticize that and say, like, oh, they're kind of, like, mixing things together. That's not right. Um, if you study, the, again, the, the history of Israel, they did this as well. Uh, Yahweh was supposed to be their king, and yet as they go along as a people, they, they claim worship of Yahweh, while also mixing in these other religious ideas. Um, the thing of it is though, as much as we can like, look down upon that, like all of us here do that as well in the West. All of us here, we take things that we value, the kingdoms that we serve under, and we conflate them with being the true version of our faith, like very much so, we all do this. We're all guilty of this as well. Uh, we can talk about this in, in different ways. Um, right now, there's this weird, like, hyper-masculinity movement that's happening in much of the church today, where there's this idea that, like, uh, in order to be a true Christian, you need to be a manly man. Like, you need to carry a gun at all times and be ready to kill for your family. And it's all about hunting and, like, going to the gym and knowing how to fix a car and all that other stereotypical stuff uh, that we... do would understand as masculine. Um, to be very clear, like, that's totally fine if you're into those things. There's nothing wrong with hunting, going to the gym, and all of that. Uh, but there's a problem when, if you're not doing these things, you're not a true man, or you're not truly uh, following Jesus, or living out the kingdom of God. There's been this weird like, hyper-masculinity like, that's overtaken pockets of the modern church. It's frankly become idolatrous. Uh, for many, the pursuit of a political ideology has, been, has uh, become tied in with their understanding of Christianity as well. Like, that's very much happening in our world today here in America. Uh, that is to say um, that unless you vote a certain way or care about certain politicians, you're not a true Christian. Uh, that unless you vote for certain policies, you're not a true Christian. Um, there is this idolatry that's very much crept into the modern church with this mindset as well, where we start conflating our politics with being the true kingdom of God again, to be clear, it's fine to have a certain political persuasion and want certain things done a certain way. Like, that's okay. And in a nation of 330 million people, we're going to have our series of disagreements about the best path forward. Um, But it's another thing entirely to say that my political party and my candidates are the only true option for Christians, and everything else is heresy. Like we're seeing much more of that conversation happening today where like, unless you're forming with all of this, you're not a true Christian, we want nothing to do with you. Many Christians today are putting their trust in their politicians as a way to live out the kingdom of God and that is not what Jesus calls us to do. He does not say put your trust in politicians, he says put your trust in me. for the sake of the argument, even if he did, even if like, were, like, we're supposed to do that, um, we're doing an absolutely terrible job at living out the kingdom of God with how we function here in America. Um, because like, let's say for the sake of the argument, again, we want to like, believe, like, hey, we could become a Christian nation. Um, we're only as Christian as we look like Christ and the peace that he brings. We're only as Christian as much as we look like Christ and the healing and the humility and the peace and all that stuff that he brings. Because if you say, hey, we're a Christian nation, and you look, like, look, look at the skyrocketing number of people that just can't afford to live. They're out there in the streets. Like if this was a truly Christian nation, like we wouldn't have homeless people. Did um, you claim your party is the true Christian party? And, and I would say, what are you doing to actually help feed people? Like how many millions of people are just like this close away to just not having a meal? Like millions by millions and children. Uh, very much as, as well. Um, to say that your candidate is, this is God's anointed while we stand by and just see the skyrocketing level of gun violence, especially in our schools, and we don't do anything about it. Like, I don't want to hear it, man. Like, that's, I don't know if that's God's anointed or not. Um, I have yet to see a political party that doesn't stop at the drop of a hat to fund the military literally billions of dollars a year. Both parties do this. Something like $773 billion were funding the military in 2023. Both parties are supporting this very much so. Regardless of who is in power, blood will be shed both here and abroad because of the person and the party who is in charge. Regardless as whether or not we are technically at war or not, people are dying because of policies and politicians that are in place, again, regardless of the political party. And so let's rid ourselves of the idolatry uh, that the political party and the candidates uh, that we are supporting are enacting the kingdom of God because they're not. Christ never calls us to gain power to enact the kingdom. We're not called to be people of power. He calls us to be a people of peace. That is what it means to live out the kingdom of God, to be a peculiar people set apart from the things of this world, not trying to grab onto power, not trying to grab onto power. And so, to my friends in the faith and those on a faith journey, to those who are here with us now, to those who are listening later, Jesus Christ has come to enact the kingdom of God here and now among us. He is king, and we live by the rules of his kingdom, to welcome in the stranger, to feed the hungry, to bring peace to all. And as we live under the various kingdoms here, let us never forget that our ultimate loyalty is to our king, the true prince of peace, who calls us to be a people of peace Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.